this episode, I have my sister Zona Lemtia joining me. We are reflecting on the language series and also we have included a new component called the book club where we talk about the books that we're currently reading and we reflect on the books that we've read in previous years and months. So the reflection is meant to sort of get an experience of how we interacted with the information that we received. We had three guests for the language series, Nombomelelo, Siwapiwe, and Usenzo. The layout of the series is such that we cover the connection between policy and lived experiences. On the first episode, the excellent researcher Nombomelelo Mokoshwana unpacked the history of languages and learning in South Africa. This episode was followed by a conversation I had with Usiwapiwe Sindeko, a social linguist that advocates for a multilingual approach in learning. The series ended with Senzo Shope, who narrated his experience of being taught in Isizulu, navigating spaces, and being a young professional who loves the identity attached to his home language. So Zonel and I sat down and we reflected on all these lessons that these individuals brought in, our guests. It was an amazing series and I thought it was important for me to have my sister as the first guest for the reflections because this is a person who I confide in, this is a person who I bounce off ideas with, this is a person who has been with me throughout this journey. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm joined by my sister Zonel Mdia. Uh, today we'll be reflecting on the language series, what has happened. We had three guests, Nombumelelo, Siwapiwe, and Senzo. And they provided input in terms of what languages mean to them, the experience with languages, whether professionally or personally, socially, and economically. Um, but today, Zonelo and I are just going to reflect on what we heard and learned from them. So, Zoni, hello. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And you? I'm okay, thank you. So, before we even go into the details of the podcast, I just want to know what do languages mean to you? I don't know. I have a complicated relationship with languages um, because for me, it's always a matter of I'm trying to really just place myself because sometimes it's a matter of um it gives a sense of belonging um so i must say that i have a complicated relationship with languages in that um there isn't a language where i feel like i have a hundred percent a sense of belonging Mm -hmm. um because as i've grown up i have realized that for example and this is lalini it's important or i don't know yes and i struggle and it always feels like, okay, I don't really have a sense of belonging within that community because the way that the communicator don't understand, I always have to go back, you know, when an elder t- um, tells you to go and fetch something or instructs you to do something. And it's like, I don't really know and I can't say it in front of them. So I'll go yeah. to someone else and say, okay, this person said this and I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. And also, for example, with Isikosa, I feel like my 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 understanding of it um the depth of the language mm-hmm. isn't there 
but it is um, my primary, my home language. So it does give me a sense of community in that way. But there are times where I question, you know, my my understanding of the language, my belonging within that community. I get you because I have a similar experience. Feeling as an outcast. So uh, I feel like an outcast because, you know, like some words you wouldn't know. And yes. it's like you ought to know. How can you know is it close and not know this word? Or mm. how can you be around Amambondo and not know um, how we communicate in this community? So now I'm from my side, I've really felt like I'm an outcast. But also I think the outcast also comes from traveling. Our family relocated a lot. Mm. Uh, so the relationship with <laughs> Languages in Tata was different to the relationship with languages in East, in East London. London because uh, the community also was very different. In Tata, we stayed in a township, and then East London, we stayed in a suburb. And then moving mm. back to Pretoria, uh, where majority of people are not Tosa speakers, then the way the survival language then becomes your Isizulu uh, yeah. or it becomes English. So I feel like. Mm the moving and relocating has really defined sort of that relationship for me as well. I think our experiences wouldn't differ that much because... Yeah, um, but I must say, for example, with the move to Pretoria, mm-hmm. um, that ignited my interest in language. Yes. When I moved to Pretoria, I was in grade... I think I was going to do grade 11, right? So I'm already grown and all of that, and they speak... Istwana, you know, Sibedi, and all these other different languages. Mm-hmm. And I come here and then I realize that, oh, okay, I actually do know a bit of Sitswana. I know a bit of Sibedi, you know. And that goes to the types of shows that we were watching growing up because I felt like I didn't start from zero. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I didn't come and I didn't know anything. And also, I must say, I know... It's a it's a weird way of making sure that you learn a language. But for me, it was um, important, for example, even with Afrikaans at school, because teachers would walk into the class and start speaking Afrikaans. It was important for me to then understand what they're saying, you know. Mm. Um, so I might not reply with, like, in that language. But then it's important for me to understand what people are saying to me mm. um, and what people are saying around me um so also with the different moves because i have been moving quite a lot that has ignited that interest in language and acquiring and getting to know and learning different languages um just for myself it isn't even a professional thing but it does um you know give a sense of community when you are able to understand other people and you're able to have those conversations in languages that they feel comfortable with yeah um funny enough when i stayed in durban for a year majority of um the women i stayed with at the residence were sibedi speakers and imagine i'm in durban and they're speaking in sibedi in the residence and i'm understanding them you know yeah so it gives a level of comfort for everyone 
in that they're able to express themselves in the language that they feel comfortable in. And we're understanding each other and we're having a conversation. So I might not be replying in Sipedi, but then I can hear you. When I reply in Gesizulu, you can hear me as well. Mm. So it's, you know, it's a dynamic relationship when it comes to languages. Yeah, no, I completely get you. And that I like that you touched on representation as well, the TV shows. I'm thinking Uskimsam, one could learn a lot about languages, Uskimsam already. Um, mm. But then, um, did you learn anything from the guests that joined us on the language series? Or like, what were your highlights? Let me put it mm. like that. What did you enjoy the most? Or... What came out for you the strongest? All right. Um, there were different things with the different guests that you had in the podcast. Um, let me start with the first episode with Uno Bumelelo. Um, okay. One of the things that struck me was the standardization of language and language planning. Um, I know she spoke a lot within the school context, yeah. but for me, it made me wonder in different environments of work as well. Um, for example, within the services industry where you provide services to people, we need to have standardized language of being able to communicate, whether it's with clients, whether it's um, with patients, within those environments, there needs to be a standardized way of communicating with patients okay and one of the things that i noted with uh, with that for example um Ubutsenzo had mentioned that for example if a teacher was explaining photosynthesis right the word photosynthesis might not be there but explaining the process was something that the teachers would do so that you do understand that this is what I'm talking about and this is the process yeah. and the examples and so on. So mm. I found that even with different industries, it then becomes important to have, you know, because for example, within my own professional experience, I can explain something, but then I don't have the actual word for it. Okay. Right. I can provide an example of something if I'm, um, with, let's say, a Tosa speaking or a Zulu speaking um, client, I'm able to explain certain things in that language, but then I don't actually have the standardized language of it. Mm. And with that, it also becomes very important because one of the things that I was thinking about just within my own um, experience in my own field was that we have certain discourses in English. Right. Yeah. And um, just going back to something I had learned during my honors at UKZN, um, it was that, for example, we no longer say a person is a disabled person or that person is disabled, you know. Mm. Um, it has shifted to it's a person living with disability, a person with albinism. So it's acknowledging the the person yeah. yes, of that individual. So now when I go back to Isikosa or Isizu, what discourses are we having to let go of, you know, those discourses that um, people frown upon in this day and age? Yeah. So are we translating even in our own languages, 
as we yeah. grow, as we learn, as we change the way we speak about things and we speak about people, are those transitions happening within our own indigenous languages? Mm. Because that becomes very important. I don't think we are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think for me, are, for example, yeah. um, it becomes easier and more comfortable if I re revert um, to the English um, language when speaking about certain things because I know that, um, for example, a certain term is derogatory and this is what we say now. Hmm. In Isikosa, I can't say, I can't pinpoint what do we say now. Um, we have established that certain terms are derogatory towards certain yeah. um, communities. But then but we what haven't... terms do we use? Hmm. Yes. You know, so yeah. that becomes very important to me that even in our everyday language, language doesn't have to be something that is um, just academic or institutionalized. But the way that we relate to each other, the way we speak to each other becomes very important. So then it's important to, to start having those discourses um, in, in our own indigenous languages so that we are able to, you know, build the vocabulary, making sure that we have words that are, you know, friendly to certain communities. Um, there is, for example, a um, an individual on Twitter who was who was translating um, mm -hmm. certain LGBTI words in Isikosa. And that for me becomes very important because I need to know in my language so that when I'm speaking in Isikosa, I'm able to, you know, correctly refer yes. to people. Mm. Instead of just reverting to English, because that's not always helpful. When you're trying to teach and bring awareness, for example, within different communities, it then becomes important that with certain words, you're able to speak in their own language, language so that yeah. there is that level of understanding. Yes. Mm. Yeah, got you on that one. The standardized, you mentioned non-pomelelo uh, and the standardized language approach as well. Is this the mm -hmm. same as the value that she was saying that maybe we should start putting value into languages? Does it tie to that or? So in terms of um, the standardization for me, um, I think, yes, it's important that we put value into our languages. But then also, for example, because we don't want to shy away from everyday people having access to certain um, terms and languages and so on. Um, it's important to not then just institutionalize the language or to have it as jargon, but then to also make sure that it's part of everyday life. Life, yeah. Um, Siwa Piwa had also mentioned um, how language is constantly changing. Right, and mm. she made the uh, uh, she made an example of sabawel. Yes. Right. <laughs> so, for example, within our everyday discourses, we need to then have um, a language that is also accessible to people. You know, because 
one of the difficulties where language becomes accessible only within an academic institution, for example, or within um, a particular industry is that most people don't have an understanding. Then can, they cannot relate with that information. Mm. So in as much as um, we want to maintain the value of our languages, we also need to make it accessible to everyone so that they also have the understanding of these discourses, of these terms, um, of you know, the change in the way in which we speak about people and we speak about certain things. Yeah, no, I get you, I get you. Mm. Uh, for, I guess I should also reflect on my part as well. So mm -hmm. for me, Nombumelelo, she touched on a major problem. Um, mm in the education system that we do have qualified teachers, but our teaching methodologies, I believe they are lacking. And I want to be more harsh than how she sort of narrated what is the problem. So, because she said it's, you can't just talk about languages without talking about teaching. And what happens in the education space a lot, for example, unions, education specialists, they will always come back to the teaching methodology that you can't introduce robotics if the teaching is not right. So you are working on not so fertile land because the teaching component is just not happening. And I think that is sort of like a disadvantage of the system as well, because currently our teachers are getting, are getting a lot of content because they're going through university, they are studying through that process, but the practical component is at minimal because when they go to do practical, sometimes they're assisting a teacher. So it's not necessarily you standing in front of a class Whereas back in the day, teachers were even trained to how, like how, on how to write on the board, for example. So the methodology has changed completely. And I feel like she highlighted an important point because for the rest of the podcast, we always have to have that in mind. That we mm. can talk STEM, we can talk uh, maths, we can talk engineering, we can talk, we can talk about anything else. But if what's happening in the classroom is not translating back to the learner, then we have a major problem because then we have an influx of qualified people that don't know how to bring back the content, right? But then at the same time, I don't want uh, to underplay the fact that children are smart. Children are capable of teaching themselves as well. Uh, some children don't even experience help from home, but then they, they teach themselves and they get through matric, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's the other part that Usenzo, for me, came through when he, he narrated his experience about being excluded. And by excluded, I'm not meaning like he was excluded from university or school, but the exclusion from the other community where no one knew what UCT was from his community. No one saw that he was fit to be part of that institution. Like 
how dare you type of a thing get there but then at the same time in as much as we have doubt we're gonna support you because we believe in you right and i there's also a language culture thing going on there um and like Usiwa Piwa said earlier as well when she touched on the emotion being lost in translation I felt like many people in our communities are not understood because of that. You cannot move because somehow you feel like you don't have the English words or the vocabulary to state how you feel, to state your condition, but you know that maybe it's an unbearable situation that you're currently in. And the only, the only way of communicating could be your tears, mm. but it's not necessarily words. And sometimes you'll find that in your home language, you will gather the words to define that. But then for now, you just don't have the words, right? Yeah. So, and then the, the last highlight for me was when she spoke about the work that they're doing with her community, teaching young children, helping them uh, with comprehending, helping them to understand the work. I, I believe it is important because that's a confidence booster. It's already starting and it's a communal effort as well. And I really like that from, yeah, from her. Oh, it was mm. a really nice series. I really enjoyed it. But, yeah. <laughs> it was definitely, it was a really nice series. Um, and just to touch on something that you had mentioned um, about how teaching is conducted currently. Mm. What I liked about some of the examples that Rosenzo gave in terms of how their teachers would teach them was that it was a very, it was active learning instead yeah. of, you know, providing children or students with information that they're supposed to passively learn. And then you just learn in order to get your marks and keep it going. So one of the examples that he used was the exercise when they were applying to university and they had to write their um, the answers for those essay questions in Isizulu and then write them in English and then the teachers would look through them. So it then becomes very important that students are actively engaged in their learning mm. instead of passively for the sake of passing, getting to a higher grade. Active yeah. learning becomes something that's very important because that's also something I have, um, I have seen as a shortcoming for myself, that I was always sort of passive with my learning. It was always that, okay, um, just do what you need to do to get to the other grade. Yeah. And then when I went to university, I realized, oh, okay, now that doesn't work because you need to critically engage with the information that you are receiving. Mm. Right. So then that becomes very important that, um, for example, I know in primary school, we used to write a lot of notes before you, you, you do um, some questions. So, for example, in maths, the teacher will literally write the notes on the board. You have to copy them. All right. Mm. And then you go into doing questions and answers. Yeah, and the exercise. You know, so even that acknowledging that oh okay i was being taught how to actually make notes because it was something that was done throughout in english you knew that before you actually when you um start with a new topic you start with okay the teacher will write down 
um, the notes that you need to, to, to know on the board. Summarize the information nicely. You color code it. So you are, in a way, supposed to be actively engaging with your material and not just reading your textbook passively and answering the questions just because it's something that needs to be done. Yeah, so it becomes very be important yes to actively engage use examples that are applicable to the child at their level and their context so that they can relate to oh okay actually yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. and we all and we will always go back to the photosynthesis example <laughs> <laughs> because it was a process that was explained even though the vocab in uh in your home language does not exist but it was explained and in that way you understood what it is that you were talking about i like that and then any items that you felt like were contradictory or you could not really wrap your head around them mm, i did find the first episode a bit um technical in that i wasn't aware of all of these different policies um, within the education space because it provided insight into um, the happenings and, and the development within the education space. And those are things that we are not aware about because we are just rece um, receiving that education. But mm -hmm. then what happens in the background, for example, we're not particularly aware of. So one of those points, for example, is that um, children between I think grade one and grade three can be taught in their mother tongue. Yeah. Um, I had never experienced that. I've never really experienced um, from myself as a child. Um, and until now, looking at my nephew, I've never really experienced a child being taught in their home language. So I think it's my context and I don't know the happenings of um, some of the policies that the department has in place Yeah. to address some of the difficulties that learners um, have been experiencing within coming into the education sphere. Yeah, and then any other pointers before I respond? No, no other pointers. Oh, okay. So on that point, right, uh, I believe it's also geographical. It's geographical in the sense that if you are in a rural school, chances are that's mm -hmm. what you're going to receive. But then if you are in an urban school, chances are you're gonna receive English as a home language. So that's the practice currently, but it doesn't mean that it's, how do I put it? It doesn't mean that it should not be achieved in urban schools as well. Mm. Yeah. So I think yeah. it does sort of, create a class divide in that sense that some others are taught in this and then because the economy responds better to this then these ones tend to benefit more yeah mm -hmm. so it does create a pattern um for for me i didn't there were not many contradictions or mm -hmm. let me say the the only contradiction that i could pick up was the role of the church. The role of the church back then, the role of the church now. The church, 
the role of the church in South Africa was, is very instrumental in the development of South Africa. It is very instrumental. It has its own influences. It is present. We can see it. We can feel it, right? But now I'm starting to question what's the role of the church today? Because um, hardly ever in politics, hardly ever advocating for certain rights, hardly ever visible. Uh, we will see an Archbishop standing and announcing and pronouncing what, that this is not right or all of that, but it as a movement, the church as a movement, I see it lacking. Because if the church back in the day translated, for example, the Methodist church, I believe, was the first church to start translating uh, the Bible. Uh, mm. I'm not negating the fact that there were also issues with that translation, but what I'm trying to say is the church was visible in their politics and they were sound in what it is that they wanted to do. But currently it seems like they are dwelling a lot on poverty and this has nothing to do with education currently, but I'm just talk, talking to the social fabric of the country that the church is failing its people uh people who believe in those values and all of that so that part i just feel like was contra it's contradictory to the times let me put it like that and then the other part that it sort of hurts me in a way when she mentioned that the koi and the sun people have approximately 11 languages um mm -hmm. what hurt me was the fact that Today you have, South Africa has 11 official languages, but their language does not even form part of the official languages. That contradiction, that 11 languages, 11 native languages from the Khoi and the San people. And then today you have 11 official languages and that does not even include one of those 11 languages from their part. For me, that was heartbreaking. It was also a reflection of the power dynamics again in this country that one part, depending on representation again, because if someone from that community was represented, chances are there would be more volume or more support for the visibility of the and the recognition of a Khoisan language at least. But currently it's mm -hmm. just, yeah, it, it just felt like something is wrong. So those are the two I think main things that are found as contradictory. Mm. No, I hear you, especially um, about the Khoi languages, um, which speaks to the preservation of language. Yeah. And, and how, because I know that that community has been fighting mm. um, for, for certain, um, for their languages to be acknowledged you know, mm -hmm. um, for their chieftaincies and so on to be acknowledged. And I think it then becomes very important to also speak about how do we preserve our languages? Yeah, yeah. How do we work on the preservation of language? And also, um, I think that the other difficulty becomes, for example, in that when you're trying to find official languages, you're simplifying a very complicated and complex yes. um, thing because it's a course, for example, oh. <laughs> there are 
who are yes. who are regarded as abakosa who say ha uh, uh, and teti is cross yes yes it's, it's important yeah you know and it's simplifying something that is complex because it's the same with sesutu you know um there's a there's a sesutu that i don't know i'm not sure if it's the northern one but the southern um, one it, yes for me it doesn't sound the same and there's one way i i can hear i can understand and there's one way i don't so it becomes very simplified when you mm. try to narrow it down and you you know you try to pick and choose as to okay let's take this one to you know to speak for everyone within this back bracket you know because mm -hmm. even with afrikaans for example the fact that there were different types but then the one that got a, um, the recognition yeah. was the one that came with, um, you know, came with power, political power. power. Yeah. yeah. So we need to then acknowledge that we are not doing enough when it comes to language preservation. Yes. Yeah. And it speaks to that that part where Umbomi kept on saying that if we don't make our languages have value, then we're already diminishing their value. The value is just being diminished automatically by us not recognizing them as a language of the economy or something. But even if it's the language of the people, for example, because you work with people, you interact with people from different backgrounds. So the assumption should not be that you're supposed to speak English only. I guess that's what yes. I'm, I'm, I'm understanding. And then let's move away now from the podcast and let's start talking about books. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so what book are you currently reading? I am currently reading The Pink Line by Mark Hvissa. What are you reading? I'm reading the same book. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading another I'm reading book. The same. <laughs> um, I just finished reading The Alchemist. Uh -huh. um, and I had put the pink line on pause just to read The Alchemist and then now I'm back to okay. the pink line. And then what was the other book that you were reading before The Alchemist and the, and Pink Line? And Pink Line, let's see. Um, I read The Longest March by Ufred Kumalo. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, actually, after that book, I had read um, The Woman Next Door okay. by Yawanda. Oh, okay. Well, well, I, what did I read before this? It was some day to, I don't, okay, I don't know, but it's Brainy Brown, a book by Brainy Brown. I forgot the <laughs> title of the book because all her titles are just in my head, but now I forgot the specific title of the book. And then do you want to reflect on any book since you're currently reading this one, meaning you can't reflect on this one? Or oh, I can start. Hmm. Okay, so I want to reflect on the author. So the okay. author is U Professor Pumla Gobodo Madigizela. Uh, many old-ish people would know her as the first clinical psychologist, first black okay. clinical psychologist in South Africa. I think she did a lot of work through representation because I believe many young black people started moving towards that profession when they saw her. Uh, she worked on the TRC 
interestingly enough. Um, and her first book is, it's a human being died that night, forgiving apartheid's mm -hmm. chief killer, uh, where she interviews Eugene de Kock. It is an uncomfortable read because tapping into the mind of a killer, particularly a political killer, and some killings were senseless, were brutal, and they caused so much trauma in the black community. So trying to understand his psyche for me was a weird feeling. But then also what intrigued me was how she walked herself through the interviews and stuff like that. I'm still not comfortable about forgiving apartheid chief killer because I feel like uh, Eugene Dukok was the bait and many people did not take account for their actions, but because he was the mastermind, he's not necessarily the mastermind, he is the doer of what the masterminds had already decided to be done. So for example, if uh, I know the mother world for, for example, it's an instruction from high ranking people who would talk to okay. people who flat plus because Eugene was part of the flat plus people. He was the head actually of flat plus. And then they would carry out the murder. So I feel like he is just, he, he is the actual murderer, but then also there is no accounting of the people who instructed him. And for example, mm. I can even say maybe if W. Clark was part of those, and that is questionable. So the book is interesting, but it, I wouldn't recommend it for someone who could easily be triggered by trauma, right? Okay. So mm. that's the first one. And then she had a second book, which she calls Day We Hope, uh, and it's facing our past to find a new future. The book consists of essays that she wrote to newspaper uh, yeah, platforms, so your mail and guardian. I don't think Daily Maverick at that time because I think this is a 2014 book or previously, yeah. But what's interesting for me is to hear someone who was involved in the DRC and what is it that they see today? Because I think people who worked in the TRC, they glorify, they glorify yeah. what the TRC meant for South Africa. But then this time, for example, one of the chapters in the book say, let me just get it right, the TRC unfinished business. So it was interesting to hear someone who worked on the TRC who acknowledges that there is unfinished business. Um, she also spoke, that, I think the chapter that I liked the most, the most was when she spoke about Julius Malema uh, and, how, and what he represents in South Africa. Like whether you like him or not, he's a representation of many young, angry black people. So you like it, you don't like him, whatever you think, but he's a representation of many people who have been disadvantaged by the system at the time that she wrote the book. So she taps into the psyche. She tries to understand the psychology of poverty, the psychology of the economy and all of that by providing examples and telling a story about it. She even mentions that the problem with the TRC was the fact that people, oh, 
the wrongdoers never apologized. There was an acknowledgement, but there was no apology. So she does acknowledge that. So yeah, those are the two books. Uh, I think I'm more recommending the, the author. And she does have many journals that she has written. She has worked on the Holocaust, on the Rwanda wars. Uh, she calls herself a reconciliation specialist, something like that, expert. Yeah, yeah. So that's Pumla for me. And those are her two books. And you? Mm. Um, I like that she, as someone who was involved in the TRC, has reflected on that process um years later you know um mm -hmm. so that it's not it's not taken it's, it's it's so important that we reflect um on certain things so i'm happy and i should definitely get myself a copy to read thank um, you <laughs> thank you <laughs> i think for me the book that i want to reflect on is um the alchemist mm -hmm. just quickly um in terms of that for me um, you know how, especially nowadays, it, people like people make you feel guilty um, for not grinding. You know, like you should always be on a grind. There's that saying that says degree," like and all those things. Um, and it just reinforced, and it really made me reflect on the importance of not constantly being busy. Yes. Um, not constantly trying to fill up time with something. Um, because one of the things um, that I realized for myself is that I'm constantly filling in, you know, I'm filling up time with one or another thing. And it's okay because you need to listen to yourself, you know, you need to give yourself time to reflect, listen to how are you feeling how are you doing taking care of yourself so it's not always about the grind it's not always about um chasing the money you yeah. yourself as an individual are important so you need to then make sure that you're taking care of yourself um making sure that you're taking time for the important things mm. you know um so for me that's one of the things and then with the pink line, even though I'm still getting into it, um, the reason why I had chosen the book is because my, um, my dissertation um, for my master's was relating to transgender individuals. Um, okay. So already now getting into it, um, one of the things that um, struck me was the importance of language and letting people be the one um, who control their narrative mm. right in terms mm -hmm. of how like which labels if any they choose for themselves so for me it's becoming um a place of learning you mm. know um about how other people around the world relate with themselves with their communities so i'm very excited about it i'm very excited to get into it mm. No, I like that. And also what I liked about ooh, the alchemist was the, like I, I want to tie it back to the busyness that you highlighted was the fact that if you're not, if you're busy, you don't have time to listen to yourself as well. So there was a lot of inner, like there was a lot of instinct 
work happening with the main character. I don't even remember who the main character was. <laughs> but there was a lot of, you know, work happening. And I liked that it was during quiet times that the, the was he a shepherd? Yes. That he found how to move next. So the mm. relaxing, the listening to your body, the listening to yourself happens in quiet times and not in busy times as we would like to think. So it's like chasing the money and heading nowhere. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. But do you have any last words before we end? Um, for me, just thank you very much for the language um, series. It was very informative. Um, and I'm looking forward to many more to come from you. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Chairman and Board Director of my life. <laughs> no, thank you so much. I really appreciate your assistance. I really appreciate your counsel. And I appreciate you and thank God for a sister. So thank you so much for doing this with me as well. I really appreciate it.